Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I was hearing this message, you need to be more strategic. I realized my definition of strategy in my head was not actually strategy. I needed to reframe strategy as being willing to completely blow everything up because there's a bigger, better thing you need to do. And I think that if you are very organized and very goal-oriented, you don't want to blow up your plan. You want to execute your plan. You're a great executor. And that will get you, you know, to a certain level. So I think that's inflection point number one. At least it was for me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I see it over and over again. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Kathleen Vigneault, VP of Software Engineering at Capital One, joins us to talk about some of the executive leadership skills that hold back engineering leaders from making it to the next level. And we also talk about how you can build those skills by applying a portfolio approach to career growth. And in this conversation, we cover how to reorient your approach to career growth and acquire essential leadership skills in a nonlinear way. We talk about making the shift from being great at execution to becoming a great strategist. Plus, we get into strategies for exceptional facilitation, influencing, reframing, dealing with conflict and negotiation strategies to aid in decision making. Let me introduce you to Kathleen. Kathleen is VP of Software Engineering at Capital One. Her organization, Customer Resiliency, builds web, mobile, and backend applications to meet customer needs in times of financial hardship so they can resolve their debt and get back on track. Previously in her six years at Twitter, Kathleen worked on promoted tweet review, tweet translation, abuse tooling, and infrastructure automation across on-prem, Google Cloud, and AWS environments. She also ran Twitter's development programs for engineering managers, personally training 300-plus managers across the topics of people management, hiring, technical skills development, and project execution and delivery. Enjoy our conversation with Kathleen Vigneault. To orient folks to the topic of our conversation, we're diving into executive leadership skill gaps and some of the things that maybe can hold people back from getting to that next level. And what I've been really excited about is like, these are the blind spots that people need to know about. Like these are the things that you can really consciously focus on and develop as you grow in your career. And so I'd love to talk about the career portfolio concept. What is it? And how did you come to adopt this framework for your own career growth? And I think this will help us kind of both one, learn more about your your path, but then also how you think about it strategically from your own career growth. So bring us in. I started back in grad school, you know, thinking I had this very linear career path all laid out for me. I studied civil engineering, structural engineering in college, and then went to grad school. And then the next step was getting the job in the San Francisco seismic office. And then continuing on, you know, looking at the leaders ahead of me who were principals at the firm and were co-owners and had leadership and like, okay, step one, get promoted. Step two, work your way up this ladder. And after a couple of years of working as a young structural designer and recognizing that my favorite part of my job was the part that 
involved uh, analyzing structures and stresses on those structures and using computer aided analysis to do that. And I wanted that to become a larger part of my job. But when I looked at the career progression, it was actually likely to become less of my job, not more. And so I think there were a lot of things I could have done in that moment that at you know mid-20s, I didn't know to explore. What I knew is I wanted to do more technology work. And so I followed that instinct and moved over to what we were calling high tech back then, which was pre-commercial internet. It blew up the ladder. Suddenly I had no real idea of my 5, 10, 15 year plan. All gone. My dad was asking me like, wait a minute, you got a master's degree in structural engineering. What are you doing? And I said, well, dad, I, I got that to give me more options, not to limit me and giving, give me fewer options. So it became a whole lot more meandering at that point. And it wasn't necessarily stacking up through a ladder. It became more about stacking skills and experiences. And so when I look back at all of the fun, different things I've gotten to do, not only has there been this idea of, you know, stacking different skills, but also really surprising things that I learned that I thought I would never need. Like, oh, why am I learning this? This is useless. Like, oh gosh, this is just something I got to do for this particular role, but I'm not going to need this in the future. And then you leap forward a few iterations and realize like, oh my gosh, this is essential to where things went. And I have the skill and who knew how, how important that was going to be. And I can, I can give a specific example. After I had switched over to technology, I was working on software implementations for uh, enterprise software. And I was in this one particular client project where I was seated with another colleague and together we were handed the Unix in a nutshell book. And we were told, okay, learn how to bash script or learn how to write bash scripts. So <laughs> the two of us are sitting there and passing this book back and forth and typing commands, grep, awk, and laughing, grep, awk, making funny sounds, just like, okay, we've got to learn this and figure out how to, you know, write um, these scripts that can be executed on the server, write cron jobs and things like this to execute reports. And I just remember thinking that everything in the world at that time was all about graphical user interfaces, GUIs, all about having this graphical experience for the end user and all about the budding trend of HTML, CSS, web design. And so I felt like, oh, this is old. This is archaic. This is, when am I ever going to need this? Uh, we were optimizing Oracle databases and tuning them for performance and doing all this, you know, kind of lower level work. And so fast forward several years when I started doing web development on my own and I'm setting up my virtual sub host and, you know, having to manage and install all kinds of software on a server. Here's my Unix, you know, like here's, you know, my facility with, you know, VI and being able to edit and write scripts and manage cron and all of that stuff. And it became essential. And now like you wouldn't think about not being able to run things at the command line in the terminal if you're a developer, like that's just essential. It wasn't then, but it is now. Like it turned out that putting GUIs all over web development, like putting a layer in between a developer and the server was like actually not really what was needed. I mean, we do have some abstractions now, things like Heroku or whatever, but there's just so many instances where you actually just have to get on and get at the command line and run your Git commands or what have you. So that was one example. Another follow-up uh, follow question specifically about your uh, structural engineering background. Do you find 
any patterns between assessing buildings for their structural integrity and like compliance and like assessing systems or engineering organizations like are there have there been any interesting patterns that you've observed um, from like the ability to like address deficiencies or structural or operational challenges within an organization compared to what you were doing early so yeah that's kind of an interesting question uh our ability to manage a lot of data right because if you're analyzing a structure it has lots of beams and columns and joints and you need to get a ton of analysis results and stresses not only per member but within a structural member at the center point at the ends etc so you're you're working with a large set of data and then you're trying to find patterns within that data um, in this case when you're analyzing structure you're looking for weaknesses and you're looking to align the, you know, sizing of these members to be appropriate for the amount of stress that they're going to receive. And some are going to be kind of points where there's a lot of stress built up. And so then you'd have a larger member there. So, you know, yeah, how could you think about how you analyze sets of data? That's certainly extremely relevant these days. You know, we all are encountering so much data all the time. And so how do you manage it in a way that allows you to target and get charts and graphs and things that allow you to quickly make assessments, or um, maybe you use you know AI to help you with that. Maybe you know there's all kinds of data pipelines and all kinds of data analysis that can help you with that. Business intelligence tools, etc. It's super interesting to think about how you could use that same model for people. Yeah, I think that's where you're headed, right? Now you imagine you know your org chart as a as a building, and you know what happens if you have a place in your organization that's under stress or is weak or, you know, experiencing some challenges. How would you put stronger members into place, you know, to make sure that you're shoring up those places in the organization and that they're operating more effectively? Another part of this analogy with structures and with people, you actually, in order to have a beam work effectively, it needs to be in a certain amount of tension. It needs to actually have a certain amount of stress applied to it. And that's when, you know, the rebar in the concrete beam actually starts to work. And so when we think about people, I think no stress is not the goal, right? And so as leaders, we're always thinking about how do we push people in a way that allows them to engage and to stretch a little and to grow a little and to actually lean into the strength that they have, right? And have that be evident in themselves and the team and in the work that they do. So I think there's a great analogy there. I like this idea of being able to look at your org chart and to think from like a tension perspective, like if you're going to create a really sound structure, being able to look at your org chart and say like, where is the current tension and the structural integrity? Being able to map like, is this person being challenged and growing in the right way as like a foundational block for are we solid as an organization? I think that's really that's really interesting diving into that perspective there. Yeah, you're not trying to eliminate the stress. You're trying to control it Yeah, and put the right members in place in order to anticipate and take that stress appropriately. Going back to the career portfolio, I'd love to learn, you know, how that perspective maybe has changed how you make decisions about different opportunities. So as you were thinking about, you know, next steps in your career at different points, how has that idea of like collecting skills and acquiring different skills in a nonlinear way shaped how you make different decisions? So having worked with full stack web development, both hands on keyboard and, and also with managing teams of web developers, um, you know, I had 
great opportunities to have front-end development experience and also back-end development experience. I was in a situation where I had several teams working at Twitter and was kind of ready for more, asking my boss, you know, if there were ways that I could contribute more or expand. And there was an opportunity outside of our group. And it was in an area where I needed, I would need to really take on a significant learning curve because it was more in the infrastructure space, more in site reliability and infrastructure, on-prem infrastructure. It grew to become cloud infrastructure, et cetera. And so you know, my boss came to me with this opportunity and I said, well, you know, why would you consider me for this particular opportunity since I don't have the technical skills yet that I will need, but like, okay, so what, what am I bringing? And he said, well, you know, we've got some negotiation and collaboration challenges. And I think that you could help us out with that. I think you could come in and try to kind of get people to work a little bit better together. And I, you know, so I, you know, looked at the situation and looked at my own history and thought whether or not, you know, I thought I could bring those skills. And then I thought, you know, what's awesome about this opportunity is then I can deepen this infrastructure skill. As long as I'm super open with the team and vulnerable when I come on and say, hey, I'm I'm learning, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I know things I don't know. And I'm going to lean heavily on the team that's in place amazingly, they were incredibly supportive every step of the way. And I think we sometimes lose sight as leaders that you don't only need support from the people above you, you need support from the people who work for you. They need to want you to be successful. Of course, you want them to be successful, but you know they've got to be bought into the idea that they have things they can learn from you and that you can work together and you can learn from each other. And I had um, this great group of folks who welcomed me in and you know helped me figure it out. And uh, that was an incredible opportunity. So then four years later, when I was ready to kind of pull back out of infrastructure focus, now I had this story that I could tell. I'm like, oh, you know, I've got front end, I've got back end, I've got infrastructure. And so now what I'm looking for as a leader is that end to end ownership of engineering applications for some business critical space, some business domain, you know, and so where that's landed me at Capital One is in the, we call it customer resiliency. So it is um, all the tools and services that we need to service our customers once they fall into delinquency and how we can support them and provide them helpful messaging and things so that they can get back on track. I was able to say, you know, yeah, okay, this this whole area, it has mobile apps, it has web apps, it has, of course, all kinds of APIs and third-party integrations, and we also have to manage container vulnerabilities, right? Like the whole gamut. And so, you know, I could come into this space and feel like I have a lot of strong technical depth across these areas, having invested time, so I'm ready, you know, to take on this full portfolio. Um, so I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this because they get to a point in their career, they're looking for the next thing and like, well, what do you want to do? And often they say, well, what do you want me to do? And that's not the right answer to that question. <laughs> like you need to have a compelling story about like how you're putting your different skills and things together that now you have something to offer. A couple things to point out, I think that are are so powerful. One, the humility as a leader, when you go into a new team to acknowledge areas that maybe you have gaps and to really demonstrate commitment to want to learn and to build strength in that area. So that story of where you're talking about going to the infrastructure team, sharing like, this is an area I want to learn and I'm leaning on you, I think is such a powerful approach as a leader, especially looking at this portfolio perspective. Like no matter if you're going to grow and you're going to enter in a new area, like that's such a powerful way to begin that relationship with people. 
and I'm obsessed with this idea of like understanding like what's the story that you want to tell you have to have a story about your career when you're talking about and pursuing another opportunity. I just think those two things are so powerful that you just shared. For somebody who maybe is reorienting their career growth approach, how would you advise somebody who is going to reorient around this way to help them think about their career growth in a new perspective? I think this approach is very opportunity driven. It takes a lot of patience and creativity and a willingness to be adaptable because you don't know what opportunities might come and when. The further you are along in your career, the more you actually have to wait for opportunities to open up. It's less of a every two or three years, you're getting promoted to the next level. I mean, sometimes it can be that way. But if you're really, let's say your goal is to be a VP of engineering, which was frankly my goal at one point. And three or four years ago, I wrote that in my journal exercise that I do every year. Like, what is the big goal? I'm like, well, I think that's my big goal. And okay, what am I going to need to put that together? Some of it is going to not necessarily mean just, okay, getting promoted from my current role at my current company to get to that. So this waiting especially if you feel ready to take on that next thing, but the opportunity is not obvious in your current environment. Yeah, it takes a lot of openness. It can be nonlinear as well. And sometimes the role changes are going to be lateral. And then sometimes you're going to have a double promotion, crazy stretch, and you got to decide whether you're up for that or not. (laughs) So Uh, it's just, it's not the way I think we've been trained to think. We've been trained to believe that things are linear and they come one after the other. And this is a very different way of thinking about things. I love it. I'm putting, I want to ask you about the the journal exercise, but I'm going to hold off for one second because I I definitely want to, I want to dive into some of these other executive skill gaps. So what are some of the other things that you've observed as gaps or blocks that people encounter in their career growth as they get closer to achieving that goal of getting into the executive level, growing themselves into that opportunity? What are some of the gaps that people typically encounter in that road? I think the first one is strategy, strategic, you start to hear you're not strategic enough. And you're thinking, what? Yes, I am. I have my whole plan. It's right here. We're going to roll out this whole thing. It's going to take three years. And that's tactical, but not necessarily strategic. I mean, it can be strategic. I remember when I learned this and when I was hearing this message, you need to be more strategic. I realized my definition of strategy in my head was not actually strategy. And I needed to reframe strategy as being willing to completely blow everything up because there's a bigger, better thing you need to do. And I think that if you are very organized and very goal-oriented, you don't want to blow up your plan. You want to execute your plan. You're a great executor. And that will get you, you know, to a certain level. So I think that's inflection point number one, at least it was for me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I see it over and over again, somewhere around the director level or leading up to the director level. And then I think the next one that you see almost uniformly across director, senior director, VP, influence. All of a sudden, influence is the thing that's like coming up in your opportunities. And then you have to break that into like, okay, well, what does influence mean? And it's this, you know, wild combination of starting to become aware of your reputation and your visibility and who can see you and who can't, who your audience is up to director. Your audience is the people who work for you and making them amazing and successful and and your boss, right? For the most part around that director, senior director level change. And I mean, I'm using titles here. They're going to be different and all these different organizations are going to have different leveling. So please bear with me on that. 
hopefully it's helpful. Somewhere around this, you know, director, senior director, VP level, then your focus needs to shift upward. So now you need to think about what are your peers seeing? What is your boss seeing? What are your boss's bosses seeing? And maybe what the board is seeing, what your, you know, C-level executives are seeing. Like all of a sudden your audience really shifts and changes. And so being able to pay attention to that audience change and kind of raising your focus up is important and letting go of the details. It's hard because you care about all these people in your organization and maybe you're used to meeting with every single one of them every single week or every month or whatever. And all of a sudden you have to let go and you have to trust your leaders below you to like be that person. And then you need to remove yourself a little bit. And that that's a difficult transition, especially for people who love to mentor and love to coach and love to just like be with the people, you know? And I, I put myself in that category as well, but you, you kind of, in the idea of essentialism, which is a great book by Greg McCown about like how you must say no to certain things in order to say yes to other things. So this, this thinking about who your audience is and your focus raising up to your lateral and above you. So now this lateral and above you area, it becomes so much about influence because you do not, these people do not report to you. Therefore, you do not have authority to tell them what to do. I mean, you have limited authority anyway, right? If you have high-performing folks in your group, hopefully you're giving them lots of autonomy. Nevertheless, what happens now if you need to align with people in your organization? And this is going to be all about influence. That gets now into some skills. What I have noticed uh, help people with influence are skills like facilitation and negotiation. Facilitation, I would characterize as, you know, sort of how do you direct a meeting, a group, a conversation to get to a certain outcome. And negotiation, I would characterize as I know what my goals are. I need to know what your goals are. And then how can we come together to really dynamically create like a bigger possibility or our future, even than we individually could have imagined. Like that would be the very best outcome of a great negotiation. Uh, that was probably the clearest definition that I've experienced around negotiation of like, I need to understand my goals and I need to understand your goals and then what we can do to create something together. I was like, wow, that's great. Now I understand negotiation. Like it's not about me trying to get my thing. It's about understanding what that other person wants and then figuring out what we can do together. I, I think that's that's incredibly accessible. I should give credit for that. That idea comes from Stuart Diamond in the book, Getting More. So it's a long book. It's got about a thousand examples. So you kind of really kind of lean in, but because it has so many examples in, because it is a long book, you know, it's hard to not walk away from that book really with those takeaways. Like, okay, I understand what getting more means. It's about this idea that there is, I, you know, how it's not about you get half the pie and I get half the pie. It's about what do I need? What do you want? And we get a bigger pie together. Anyway, it's a great book. It's very helpful. And uh, paired with some negotiation workshops that I was able to do has helped frame the way I think about negotiation. I love that. My follow-up question was about the the shift that you made from what what your definition was of being strategic and then what what shift you needed to make and going from that being in a great executor to then thinking more strategically like can you help illustrate a little bit about like what what was that specific shift like how did how did your definition change and then how did that change how you operated It kind of comes back to getting some direct feedback that when I first heard it I didn't believe was true our brains do that to us we just don't want to take that in. So a lot of times, you know, you hear some feedback and you think, yeah, no, I don't think that's right. And you just sort of reject it. 
it, it didn't take a long time. I think that's the initial reaction of the day, but you know, now like over the course of days or whatever, and starting to talk to other people, you know, is this, is this something I need to pay attention to and realizing actually, okay, you know, one of the things we can do when we receive feedback is to pause and think, okay, where's the grain of truth here? You know, what do I need to pay attention to? It may be curious, okay, if what I think is strategy is not matching this, you know, the feedback I'm being given, I wonder if my definition just isn't right. I think I just start, I literally started Google searching strategy, strategic planning, strategic thinking. I read multiple books on strategy. Now you're going to ask me names of books probably. And uh, (laughs) playing to win is a classic. So, you know, I just started doing my homework and that's what made me realize. And at some point in that journey, I like that quote of strategies about blowing everything up to get to this big new outcome. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay. I definitely don't do that. <laughs> or at least I didn't then, you know, I didn't feel like that was something that I was choosing to do. And then I could think about where I'd seen leaders make big changes, make big shifts, reorg, right? Our leaders are reorging. And sometimes that can be hard, you know, like change. We're all kind of resistant to change. But if you kind of look and think about that, like, well, why is that reorg happening? You know, it's probably in the service of blowing some things up, upsetting some people, potentially not finishing some work you had started because we've realized we need to pivot, you know, because conditions are always changing. The market is changing. The economy is changing. The products, the features, the competition. And so, yeah, you got, you got to shift and, and go to where the puck is going. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I would love to dive more specifically into facilitation. So like, what are some of the key principles when you're thinking about this as relates to influencing? Like, what are some examples of, of what this looks like at play? I think, you know, the easiest example that will be familiar to people is you're standing at the whiteboard and you're in a room of people and you've come together for some purpose. And it's, you know, either you're going to hash out a new architectural diagram and you're going to figure out the trade-offs between doing it this way or that way and probably even backing up from there starting with a blank sheet of paper what are all the ideas um, and then you know ideally you're walking out of that room with a clear direction if you frame it up that way hopefully listeners can kind of um, see themselves in, in one of those situations there was really helpful framework that I was able to take advantage of during, you know, a training, a leadership training that I was in. So when you're in this room as a facilitator, you're leading the group through a, a series of steps. Sometimes we'll do this with stickies. People can be familiar with this idea that what's the first thing you do? You get the stickies and you try to expand all the ideas in the room. You want every and all ideas. You do stickies partly because some people will shout their ideas out. And other people don't really collaborate that way. They like to write and think and they have a different process. So anyway, first, how many ideas can you get in the room? And how can you get them from everyone? And how do you not worry about the quality of those ideas? Doesn't matter. You just want quantity. And this is, you know, this goes along with design thinking. You know, there's processes in design thinking that are all about 
trusting the process and starting out with just wild and crazy ideas. But then at some point, based on whatever amount of time you have, and as a facilitator, you are always on the clock. You're always watching the clock to pay attention to kind of where are we in this process? It's your job to be managing that. So you can't get too involved as a participant. You kind of have to stand outside of the group and watch it occur, which also takes some discipline because many of us have gotten to the places in our careers where we are because we have lots of good ideas and it's hard not to be the idea generator. But in this instance, you, you're kind of a removed participant. And so once you've collected all the ideas, now you need to move the group, right, to start narrowing. So you're opening this diagram, like imagining like a diamond shape where you're opening up to as wide as that will go. And then at some point in this meeting, you've got to start narrowing it back down to come down the sides of the diamond. And so you're grouping things, you know, you're, you're putting people's ideas together. You're making sure everybody understands like what the ideas are that we're talking about. And, you know, as you start to narrow, there will be people in the room who will want to come back to the beginning and bring brand new ideas in. We call them option expanders. And your job as a facilitator is to very politely make sure everybody understands like where you are in this process. And actually, we're not going to option expand anymore. We completed that and we've moved into option narrowing, option limiting. Then you'll have other people in the group who are all about option limiting. They Five minutes into this brainstorming thing, they were done. They wanted to just get to the answer. So you also kind of have to manage those personalities to have the patience to sit through the beginning of the exercise, which is no, actually we're in option expanding first. We're going to get lots more ideas. We're going to sit with this. So, you know, you kind of, you're managing people through these processes. You're being clear about what part of the process you're in and why, because at the end, you know, you kind of want to come out with a key one, two, three options, whatever you've decided. And so then, you know, kind of toward the end, you usually have some sort of grouping and then you, you know, can vote. It's not going to look like this, I guess, if you're doing an architectural diagram. So that might not be the right approach, but nevertheless, with an architectural diagram, you're going to have a lot of people continue, you know, kind of in either, I have more ideas. We could use these other tools. What about these six other languages or, you know, SaaS products, or we could enter into our diagram, but you're still trying to get to a completed diagram. And so at some point you have to limit the choices. And so, you know, as a facilitator, hopefully if you've managed that process well, you can kind of get to, you know, a set of options that everyone co-created. And that's another huge part of influence is the buy-in you get when people feel part of creating the solution together, uh, which is another reason why you as the leader cannot have all the good ideas because then people don't feel bought in because they didn't get to co-create it. So those are some thoughts on this process of facilitation, what you're looking to do in a, in a meeting in a group like that, what some of the benefits are of kind of stepping back and letting the group be, you know, the key participants in this exercise. I, I love the visual of the diamond, expanding the options and then narrowing and choosing the options, including everybody being mindful of time and moving efficiently through, uh, through the conversation and I think the part that you mentioned of continuing to revisit and describe and label where we are at in this process so people can follow gives sort of like the cognitive roadmap so people can participate and know where they're going. And so I, I really love that example. A follow-up question is sort of about the, like, how do you get to the, the greatest efficiency of like input and making choices? You know, like, how do you, there's one thing Jerry and I always talk about is for him, he is like a, a time optimizer. So he wants conversations to be short. He wants high efficiency of information. 
And for me, I'm an option expander. I was like, I want, I want to talk about all the different options. And so we sometimes run into tension about being efficient with time and exploring options. So how do you as a in like this facilitation skill perspective, like move through in a way that's both efficient, gets options, explores, makes people feel that they are co-creating? Um, like, how do you think about that part? That's a yeah, that's a great question. And it needs really deliberate planning. When you're conceiving of this meeting, you need to have a structure and a time frame that allows for that option expanding portion, allows time for everyone to speak, allows time for your people who express themselves in more lengthy ways. You welcome that in the option expanding phase. You're not cutting people short. You are needing to make sure the group helps you facilitate the amount of time that we all have and making sure people get airtime. So for your folks who like to take lots and lots and lots of airtime, it's good to enroll them with you to help manage it, to ask them to notice people in the group who are not participating, call out people who might be hesitant to share their ideas. But you do need to have some patience as the facilitator to let things kind of evolve and go in weird directions and seeming tangents in that first phase. And so you need time for that. So if you think you're going to run through that phase for a completely greenfield situation where you're starting from ground zero and don't have any idea what the option set could be, you better give it a lot of time. You better not say it's 30 minutes. It's not going to be 30 minutes. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more than 30 minutes. So you either would need to narrow the scope of what you're trying to achieve or you need to lengthen the time. So that would be one thing. And I, like you said, I think that setting of expectations about the intentionality that we're going to let it meander it's going to feel a little like we're not getting anywhere. Maybe to say that to people who, like me, are like, all right, chop, chop, what are we getting done? <laughs> uh, can be helpful, right? I, it certainly has helped me when I've been the participant and wise facilitators have said, hey, you know, trust the process. This is part of it. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. I'll, I'll be patient. Let me sit back and see what happens. We were talking about facilitation sort of in respect of like idea generation, having the group come together to make certain decisions. One of the other contexts I want to talk about this was, uh, I know that you have a perspective on how to apply these same skills, but in an interview setting, uh, in like in a, in a candidate hiring perspective, how do you apply some of these like facilitation skills like in service of interviews to help you get the signal that you need faster? What does it look like there? In both scenarios, you're doing a lot of polite interrupting. So you have to have some confidence and an assertive quality or capability uh, that you you know where you're trying to take this, you know why you're trying to lead this in a certain way. And if things go too far off track or start to get you away from being successful, right, with the outcome you're trying to achieve, you have to gently interrupt people and you have to practice being able to do that. A lot of people just are very reticent to interrupt. That's true in the facilitated session, and it's also true in an interview. So, you know, when I when I start interviewing somebody, and I've interviewed hundreds of people, it's been a really interesting, you know, experience to have uh, interviewed people at all levels, executive levels, etc. First of all, I really want people to feel comfortable with the interview setting. I want them to be able to show themselves in their very best light. I don't want to ever trick them or riddle them. And so I try to, you know, set up at the beginning, you know, this is the topic area and this is what we're going to cover. If I can frame up the structure of the time we have together, uh, that helps people figure out how much detail they need to provide. Because some people really will go into so much detail 
And kind of the worst thing you can do at the beginning of the interview is say, so tell me about yourself or give them some wide open, vague, walk me through your resume or tell me uh, your career journey. Oh, you'll get a 40 minute monologue. And that probably will not include the questions that you, you need uh, to get answers to. And so, yeah, first of all, try not to ask wildly open-ended questions because it just means the interviewee doesn't know what are they supposed to do? Like, how much detail do you want to give? Where do you want me to go with this? So I'll try to ask a more narrow question, but even a brief intro, people will just, oh, you want a brief intro? And they'll go in to 20 minutes. As we get into that, I'll just say, you know, excuse me, thank you so much. You know, super interesting story that you're they're sharing right now. But I think that I, I got the gist of what we were saying, you know, and I'll repeat back some of the things and, and why I think they said them and why I think they're relevant to this conversation. And then I'll say, you know, but I do want to make sure we move through the questions that we have, uh, want to make sure we have enough time in order to, to really get into some key examples that we need to discuss together today or something to that effect. So yes, I will gently and somewhat assertively interrupt them. <laughs> I love this idea of polite interrupting because this comes up a lot in some of our, our live events. You know, somebody during Q&A may have a massive three-part question or right. a huge walk-up. Do you have other phrases for polite interrupting that you have found to be particularly kind, gentle, and helpful in moving forward? Well, just using the words thank you kind of honors the fact that you appreciate what this person is sharing. So, you know, Patrick, thank you so much, you know, for what you're sharing with me right now. Um, Really, you know, have appreciated what you've been sharing, but I do have some other questions. Is it okay? Most candidates will respond well to that because they know that you are trying to move them through certain questions. And most candidates do want a little bit of a sense of the time frame and want you to manage the interview. Some don't. Um, so then I have to be a little bit more forceful and again, kind of reiterate why. And sometimes I'll even say at the beginning, you know, is it okay if I, if I interrupt you to, to make sure that we kind of move through all the things we need to talk about today, kind of depending on how things start. If mm. I feel like I'm having to interrupt over and over again, recontextualizing why that's happening so that they don't feel like they're getting the answer wrong. I don't want them to feel like they're doing it wrong. I just want to move them through. I love that practice of like making sure they don't feel wrong and setting that right expectation. I was wondering if you could introduce us to the approach that you talk about there in terms of the approach to reframing and the practice to facilitate decision-making. So in situations where there's conflict, almost always there's a picture inside each person's head and then assumptions that another person is making about what is important to each party. Sometimes you can observe that going on when two people are in contention and can't seem to move forward together. Each person wants the best for their team, their company, their project, but they have a different way they think is the right way to go about it. And so there's a few different things to be paying attention to here. One is trying to remove the assumptions that people have about each other that you, that you suspect may not be correct. So in one particular example, there was a tool used at the company. This team had to own and maintain the tool. This team was very unhappy with the way the tool operated, and they had strong opinions about how to fix it. These two teams were in so much conflict that they were avoiding each other. And so it was making it hard for us to do work together. And so, you know, we had an opportunity to come together at one point where we could reframe the assumptions that each team was making about the other. 
one key assumption was that the maintaining team loved this tool, thought it was the best thing ever, and was defending it, which I didn't think was true. And so when we came together, we kind of worked on debunk. I worked on debunking that idea. So team who maintains the tool, can you talk about how you feel about the tool? Well, it's been here a really long time. We inherited it. We know there's lots of problems with it. We're doing the best we can. And then the other team is like, oh, we thought you loved it. We thought you were married to it. We thought you were the champions of it. You know, and the team is like, no, like, it's just a tool. We would use another tool if there was a better tool, but this is the tool we have and we're doing the best we can. So right there, there was kind of a shift. And right there, we sort of broke through so that then the suggestions that each team was making about what we could do to make this all better were less about personalities and people defending and more about, yeah, you're right. We all agree that it's not ideal. So what can we do to make it better? And what can you do to give feedback to us that doesn't attack us and make us feel like we're doing it wrong or we're bad engineers or whatever? And so, you know, we were kind of able to move forward after that. I love it. We've, we've dove in from influencing from like an idea generation perspective. We've talked about how to address and reframe conflict, which I think is such a, a powerful approach to influencing there. I just think it's, it's been a ton of fun to examine those things. I'd love to also talk about decision making and the approach that you use for facilitating decision making and, and how that shows up in this, this world of influencing. When it comes to writing down our recommendations for what should happen, uh, we tend to write down our perspective and our option. And we tend to want to just frame up the one option because we're afraid if we show other options, then people will choose the one we don't want. And we're super invested in how we want it to go. I've found so much more success in just going ahead and putting down all the options. So in one particular example, our group and our team had a point of view and had an option that we favored. Uh, We knew another group had an option that was different than that. And so we framed, we got a document together and we framed up all of the details in a kind of a comparative matrix of, you know, what our option included. It had to do with how long we thought it would take to implement, you know, industry trends, skill sets, all kinds of different things because it was a technology related decision. And then, you know, I went to the other group and said, hey, can you give me all of this detail for this other option? And really sincerely put their option together as it was a good option also. Like, how can we show these as both valid and good options and frame this up in a way that if you do it well and you show kind of all these different dimensions, it should actually make the decision self-evident and or it should show what your trade-offs are. Like our team didn't want to take on a lot of maintenance. And so, you know, one of the things we wanted to say was, hey, option A will be less maintenance. Option B will require more maintenance. So out of nowhere, the other team actually came into the meeting and said, we actually want to go with your proposal. And it was hilarious because I wasn't even thinking we were ready to make any kind of decision. We were ready to talk about everything. But I think because we were sincere in our attempt to really get to the right answer and not to the one we wanted, the one we were invested in, but that we were willing to concede. We were willing to give some things up. We understood that there was no perfect answer. And as long as we all understood the trade-offs, 
as long as we all understood that if it meant more maintenance for our team, then maybe we would need more staffing and we could overcome that as well. You know, that there was not a perfect answer. Uh, We just needed to kind of come up with a decision and, and move forward. We also had framed up some impractical options that helped show that we had considered multiple things. And because we, we tend to not write that down, like, oh, there, there, there's this option. Nobody wants that option. So we don't even write it down. I recommend you write it down. It just answers the question about whether you considered that and why you eliminated it as a practical answer. And it can sit there against the other better options and kind of kind of show why they're better options. So those are some things um, that have really helped me think about, you know, how do we write all this stuff down? How do we get it out of people's heads? We tend to debate and talk over and over again without just writing it all down where everyone can see it and then trust that if we do that, we're going to get a great answer that we can all be comfortable with. The tactics that you've laid out here, like I feel like some of them have come up in different decision-making settings that I've been in unconsciously. And like that moment where you're talking about where when you do demonstrate the trade-offs or, or seriously consider somebody else's proposal, how that opens them up to being willing to consider somebody else's option that that's being surfaced and that they might be willing to go down that path versus being attached to their idea. It's a, a great way to respect the contributions of your team and then help everybody come in a line on what they think is the best decision without like that attachment to a certain pathway because it's their idea they own. So I, I just I really appreciate just like the, the impact that a lot of the those tactics create. Yeah, it really, really helps to get less attached, like you said, to <laughs> a specific concept or idea and really try to detach from that and become more objective. And, you know, the the further you go along in your career, the more you need that objectivity to be a little bit more removed. A great way, I think, to summarize this part of of the conversation, Kathleen. Are you ready to to wrap up our conversation with some rapid fire questions? Yes. All right. First question, what are you reading or listening to right now? Yes. So I listen to audiobooks while I run. And so I currently am listening to Dave Grohl, the storyteller about uh, his experience as the drummer for Nirvana and then starting the Foo Fighters. I love memoirs and uh, this is a great one. So I'm enjoying that. And then uh, reading, I've just picked up Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, which is about how you make bets from the perspective of a poker player, like a world-class poker player, but applied to life decisions, business decisions, like how can you leverage some of those strategic concepts about how poker players place bets? So I think I could get better at that. So I thought that would be a cool read and I've heard good things about it. That's great. What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I'm going to say the aura ring. A few years ago, people at work started showing up with these aura rings. And at first I kind of wondered, well, you know, what's the difference between the aura ring and the Apple watch? Because, you know, you can get your heart rate and a bunch of other signals, sleep and stuff like that with your Apple watch. The aura ring also has body temperature and it has a pulse oximeter, at least the newer ones do. It helps me really understand how well I sleep, understand like what time is the best time to sleep, especially working an East Coast schedule and getting up at five o'clock in the morning. I wanted to, to get it because I thought it would introduce some really good accountability on what I eat close to bedtime and what I drink close to bedtime and how much I'm exercising, all these different factors. So I really, really love it. I look forward to looking at my metrics every morning and I think it's awesome. 
I completely agree with you as a as an Aura Ring uh, user as well. Jerry is also so him and I will kick off our meetings with how's your sleep score like, and it also sets the context for like <laughs> <laughs> some accountability. Like, man, you should probably go to bed. Like, you need some you need some sleep. So <laughs> I, I love that. Two more questions. What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? So the Huberman Lab is a very popular podcast right now. I'm sure your listeners have heard of it. I've had two different friends tell me that his episode on what alcohol does to your body, brain, and health had an immediate impact on them. And I hadn't listened to it. So then, of course, I had to listen to that episode. And my takeaway from that, the aura ring, I think we're going to start to see a trend where non-drinking doesn't have to be this thing that's associated with people who get to a level of addiction, they need to go to rehab, and then they need to be completely sober. Or people who just have never been drinkers and have more of the teetotaling lifestyle. It feels like those are the choices if you want to be healthy and you want to make sober choices. And so I think I would hope to see, and what I think maybe might start to happen, or maybe what I'm seeing at places that I visit, is it starting to be more in the category of veganism or keto or, you know, whatever, whatever diet you might be following is a choice about what you're putting in your body. And I, as I see more mocktails on menus and more people kind of experimenting in that space, I think it could fall into that category and be a little bit more socially acceptable. Because right now, I think there's a stigma and, you know, I think servers kind of call people out you know, you want a mocktail? You want non-alcoholic? You know, And if you're just kind of trying to be chill or you just want to drive home that night, or maybe you just want to be awake enough to, you know, do something in the evening and not feel sleepy. Like there's lots of reasons people might choose. And, you know, there's a sensitivity I have about this because, you know, family members who, you know, have struggled to be sober. And I just think we could have a world that was so much more open to however people want to show up in their social environment. Normally we get a lot of tech tech trend hot takes. I really think this is a powerful lifestyle take. And I see this trend all the time as well with, you know, I'm I'm up in North Idaho and they've had a couple Kava tea places open up as like this sort of like alternative pathway to like do something that doesn't necessarily revolve around around alcohol. So I'm all on board with this trend. I, I totally see it. Um, and I think that's great. Well, I couldn't pick Gen AI. I mean, <laughs> we've all been talking a lot about Gen AI. I've got things I could say, but you've all heard enough about Gen AI. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Last question, Kathleen. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I keep coming back to this, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway quote, which is, you know, just about taking big risks. And each time I've either taken on a new role or taken on a new job, I have felt that scary, uncomfortable feeling. I even have a picture on the wall in my bathroom that a friend took of me jumping off of a rock into a lake. And that picture is like, that's what it feels like when you jump off and there's just nothing but you and the water below. And unless you're willing to be in that uncomfortable free fall of, you know, stretching and learning and growing, you're not going to reach your dreams. And so it comes up for me every time I look at the next stretch and I think, okay, here we go. Jumping off the cliff again. You're going to feel that fear and just go turn off your brain and just do it. Fantastic. Kathleen, thank you so much for incredible stories, helping us understand like the executive skill gaps that exist, and then guiding us through different approaches with facilitation and different ways to apply that in different settings from decision making to ideation and to navigating everything in between. Um, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. It's It's been awesome to talk to you. You've had such good questions and make, making me think, you know, about 
how we should all be stretching and growing these different areas. And so really have enjoyed the time with you today. Thanks for the opportunity. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.